This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. I will give a talk for a few minutes and then when we open up for discussion, remember to unmute yourself to share. The talk today is, um, before I start on the topic, just a couple of introductory reflections. Um, Remember in my talks, I try and give a description as best I can of my experience and understanding of practice my experience and understanding of Dharma. And um, there's no expectation or desire for anybody to believe what I'm saying. Um, Ultimately, with these Dharma teachings, um, it's always comes back down to doing our best to describe in words our personal experience. And secondly, um, if that can be helpful in any way, in a pragmatic way, to helping to relieve suffering and uh, realize our happiness and peace. So the, since the beginnings of Buddhism with the historical Buddha, who did not really focus on questions of truth in the sense of metaphysics was more concerned with the the practical outcome of the teachings in terms of how this points us to experiencing the happiness which is ours always The, the reference for today is the, um, the chapter in Everyday Zen by Joko Beck, um, which I think is a key, a key chapter in her first book called The Observing Self, which comes under the uh, subtitle of Suffering, page 122 of Everyday Zen, which if if you don't have a copy of Everyday Zen, let me know. I can I can send you a copy of it. And uh, on Saturday, I sent everybody a copy of the practice triangle diagram, which I continue to refine, which is a kind of little a diagram which helps me to try and keep things simple and integrated in my teaching. And uh, for those of you who have not looked at it or don't have it so far, it's simply a a triangle with the, uh, at the apex of the triangle and this particular triangle, I've got self as a were presence. In the left-hand corner of the triangle, I've got self as content and in the right-hand other side of the triangle, I've got self as stream of experiencing with arrows connecting each one. So again, we're talking about self today. And um, you sometimes, one of the dominant paradigms of that, um, from Pali Buddhism, the, the suttas that were written down in Pali was that Buddha taught not self or no self. There are all different interpretations of that, what, what that means. And uh, 
So the way I interpret that is that the Buddha taught that we're not our conceptual self. We're not our personal self. Self as aware presence is a different matter altogether. I like to use the word self for that as well because what we experience and what is given to us is always given to us in first person. So what I'm going to be trying talking about today is once again to describe my experience and, and hopefully facilitate your own way of distinguishing this and connecting with this and recognizing your own self as aware presence, which is intimate. It's impersonal, but intimate. Just like drinking of water is very intimate. The sounds are very intimate. All our experiences is my experience. I sometimes, so in a way, what's very, I think, what draws me back to this all the time is the mystery at the heart of who we truly are. Each one of us is a mystery. The core of our being, we are all mysteries. When Bodhidharma was asked, who are you? He said, I don't know. It's a mystery. But we know that we're here. We know that we are experiencing. This awareness that we are, this consciousness that we are, can't be explained by science. It's a mystery. And in this talk, I'm going to suggest that it's a different dimension. And we, this different dimension is a doorway. And we are all that doorway, that open doorway. Uh, the metaphor in, in Zen is the gateless gate. So right now, as you're sitting, listening to me in your, you're located in a particular room. Your body and mind are located in space and time. But I would like to suggest to you that the consciousness that you truly are is not located in space and time. So a couple of quotes from Joko Beck from the chapter on the observing self, which um, I highly recommend. And um, I think Joker was influenced by a, a book that was published in 1982 called The Observing Self by a guy called Arthur Dykeman, who was a psychotherapist, one of the first psychotherapists to have a dialogue with the mysticism tradition and psychotherapy. And his book was called The Observing Self. Much of what Joko talks about in this particular chapter, you'll find in that book, which was published in 1982. So Joko says, that which observes cannot be found and cannot be described. If we look for it, there is nothing there. Since there is nothing we can know about it, we can almost say it is another dimension. And then she says, I have been asked, isn't observing a dualistic practice? Because when we are observing, something is observing something else. But in fact, she says, it's not dualistic. 
And this is a very, very important point. The observer is empty. Instead of a separate observer, we could say there is just observing. There is no one that hears. There is just hearing. There is no one that sees. There is just seeing. In other words, the self that we are describing here is not a metaphysical ego substance beyond or behind the experiential realm. However, it is both impersonal and intimate. One could still say, this is myself, this is my true self. The observing self or self as aware presence is both uniquely my experience, but it is also inseparable from what we might describe as the universal self or universal consciousness. Our own unique experience of our ordinary taken for granted self-awareness opens into the mystery of what we might describe as the I dimension. And the I dimension cannot be objectified. It is both transcendent and imminent. It cannot be located in time and space. It's often really hard to get our minds around. It is not constituted by the conditions and circumstances that are embodied relational self experiences. I sometimes say to myself and sometimes to some of the people I meet with, stand as awareness and be kind to self and others or stand as awareness and be kind to Andrew. This observing self or self as awareness presence has both a, a synchronic and a diachronic unity. So what I mean by that is synchronic just referring to the space here right now the manifold experiences we're experiencing right now. Sound of the crow here, sound of a car going past, the feel of myself breathing, the view of the room, etc. These are all different contents or experiences which are being given to me into my first-hand experience in my awareness as presence. And in that way, they all have a unity. They're, they're, they're being experienced in this now unity of my consciousness. In the same way, diachronic refers to temporal time dimension. And I would say, on the basis of my experience, and again, these are fine points, that the aware presence that experienced events yesterday is the same aware presence experiencing right now. And it will be the same aware presence that experiences events tomorrow. As far as my experience goes, my aware presence has never had a beginning nor an end. Hence, again, it's another name for the now. This I dimension is a transcendent dimension. This is the mystery, which the body-mind world comes and goes. Our experience of our body as sensations, as a concept, our experience of the world through our perceptions, 
in our experience of ourself as thoughts and feelings is always in a flux, always coming and going. But it's being experienced in this aware presence that I am. This aware presence does not come and go. It's not located in space and time. Space and time appear within it. Because this is such an important teaching, it goes by many names in different traditions. Witnessing consciousness, silent illumination, nirvana, simply I am, formless self, sensual nature, true self, no mind, non-dual awareness, experiencing, pure awareness, Buddha, big mind, etc., etc. It is a dimension outside of the conditions of space, time, quality and relationality. What we experience as impermanent is the continuing flux of our body-mind or our relational self in space and time and qualities and relationships, which are constantly shifting and changing. And consciousness is transcendent of that. The space, time, and the qualities and the rationalities have their being in consciousness, are experienced, are made present by consciousness. So what is consciousness? The big question. So in many of the traditional teachings, consciousness, both in the Buddhist teachings and in Avaita teachings, is seen as being the principle of manifestation or illumination. You will see numerous metaphors referring to light in the Buddhist, Zen Buddhist koans. So the metaphor of light, illumination, consciousness, it's like light. Just as without the sunlight, there would be darkness. Without consciousness, nothing would be known or manifested. This embodied self-world that we participate in appears manifested in our aware presence. It has its being in our aware presence. But aware presence itself is the dimension in which it appears. Now many in 20th century teaching and philosophy, uh, many people speak about the reason why we find it difficult to recognize this is because of our forgetfulness, the way in which we are hypnotized by what Husserl, the phenomenology is called the natural attitude. We just simply take for granted this assumption of objective reality existing somewhere out there. We take it for granted, this notion of a self and another and this dualistic world that we live in. It's very rarely that we question that. We are so captivated by, so identified with the contents or the objects of our experience that we totally forget who we truly are. So most of the time we are so identified with the contents or objects of awareness, we do not recognize self as awareness. This is why it's usually necessary to either to, to, to meet a teaching in some way. That could be through a book, it could be through a video, it could be through a person, or perhaps to have the good fortune of having a some kind of experience which is illuminating, or sometimes, paradoxically, severe anxiety can actually question that taken for grantedness we fall into. Um, sometimes it requires the uncomfortable experiences of anxiety for us to wake up in a way.
or at least to start to question what we normally take for granted as reality. So it's very important that we recognize the self as awareness. And in many ways, many of the teachings talk about how language in many ways imprisons us. But on the other hand, it's often the case that language can be used to free us as well. So whether it's just the ritual of sitting in formal Zazen practice where we remind ourselves to pay attention, to be awake, to ask this simple question, <laughs> what is this or what is this? It's not the kind of question people normally ask. We're just lost in our everyday life world, concerned with our everyday life activities. How many people and friends do you know going around asking themselves the question, what is this? It's very rare. Unless, again, something happens to pull us out of that or we meet some kind of teaching. This realization that who we truly are is awareness is transformative when we start to shift our identity in that way. It's a gradual process. Sometimes it might seem really clear, then it gets a bit muddy and confused, but there's a gradual shifting that takes place in this practice. We are simply seeing, hearing, tasting, thinking, or to sum it all up in one word, experiencing, and there is no owner or experiencer apart from that experiencing. You know, I've been pleasantly surprised to discover there's a, a number of uh, uh, philosophers these days, much younger than me, who have continued in the tradition of um, exploring these questions in the sort of phenomenological tradition questions about self and other, et cetera, et cetera. What is consciousness? And uh, many of them are um, uh, really finding their way into these traditional teachings of Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta. So here's a quote from one of these philosophers, these young philosophers called Wolfgang Fashion. He says, the subject or self referred to in self-awareness is not something apart from or beyond the experience, but simply a feature or function of its givenness. Hence, it would be more appropriate to discuss the subjectivity of experience rather than the subject of experience. In other words, the subject of consciousness is simply consciousness itself. And another quote, experiential presence is always and only the presence of streaming experiences as streaming. I permanently experience the passing of experience that transpires in each present. And therefore my present living through these ever streaming experiences, but presence does not come and go. The streaming has its presence in this presence that we are, that doesn't come and go. So aware presence is kind of like the ground for the self, which we experience as an object or a concept or the sense of being a separate self entity. But presence does not consist of the contents, the present contents, but is what makes them present. So we could say that I, the I dimension, the I am, is the presence of the contents. There is no witness, only witnessing, which is understood as the taking place of presence. Consciousness simply is abiding presence. Consciousness is experiencing. 
But unfortunately, like Narcissus looking into his reflection in the water, we mistake our identity for the reflection in the water. We identify with the illusion of a separate self. And from that separate self, suffering follows. But it's so seductive because this sense of the separate self feels real. Because it draws upon or introjects this aware presence that we are, but turns it into a separate entity. Which is where we get mistaken and we lose our path. It superimposes itself on the ground of being, on our sense of a word presence. It hijacks it. So I'm just going to finish with some practice issues. So from the point of view of the observing self and observing our, our mind and body, it is good practice that we observe and make conscious as much as we can of our desire of our describable selves, everything that we that's the content of our awareness, whether they're thoughts or feelings, beliefs, we do our best to make ourselves as conscious as we can of those. And that is also, of course, good therapy, making conscious thoughts, feelings and beliefs, which are not which are often out of our consciousness, our awareness. But from the point of view of practicing with the self as awareness or the, the self as aware presence, this is our safe refuge. Like we can just be self abiding, resting in this presence that we are. We don't have to go in search of peace or happiness. The peace and happiness is this presence that we are. This is the no gain or loss. We're no longer seeking, no longer pushing away or grasping. We're just taking our stand or our seat as awareness. We're shifting our identification from the self as content to the self as awareness. It changes our perspective. I am not my thoughts and allows us to experience difficult feelings without avoidance. It's the practice of making the now our home. And Joko says, the way of practice that I found to be the most effective is to increase the power of the observer. Whenever we get upset, we have lost it. We can't get upset if we are observing because the observer never gets upset. Nothing or no thing can get upset. So if we can be the observer, we watch any drama with interest and affection, but without being upset. The aim of practice is to increase that impersonal space. It's our natural state when ego is absent. So I'm going to leave it there. I know that may have been at times somewhat difficult, but let's have a talk about it and see if we can make it a little bit clearer. So remember when you are talking to unmute yourself first. Um, Andrew, that was amazing. I'm going to have to listen to it again on SoundCloud a couple of times to, uh, to take it all in. But uh, I think it's just amazing how you put all that together. Um, you know, parts of it are philosophy and um, phenomenology and uh, yeah, so many um, reference points. So it was really, really interesting. I just, my question is, um, the, you know, Joko talks about, um, and you've talked about, uh, experiencing like 
um, not not so much your experience, but experiencing itself as being kind of like a, I guess you put in your, um, you mentioned a stream, like a stream of experience. And um, talking about uh, like having the awareness um, to experience everything um, that's happening in moment by moment. Um, could you just talk about where, uh, I guess, how that that sort of sense of consciousness of sort of ex uh, kind of being with all manner of experience, how that relates to um, the the individual self that you talked about, or the self of content, and then this this the self of overall open awareness. Um, I don't know if that's yeah, that's a good that's a good question because that that's where it gets difficult because it's um, the the separate self you can even call it the relational self if you like it it tends to construct itself as a separate entity. Um, and hence, it experiences the need to defend itself. Self and other arise together. No other without self and no self without other in terms of the relational self. It's like we become identified with the chess pieces on the chessboard and forget that we are the chessboard. In other words, the chess pieces don't realize that the absolute reality, the fundamental being is the chessboard. But they draw from or take from the chessboard that sense of self, of ongoingness. So like, that sense of being a self um, is real in the sense in which I'm sure you, I have, I'm sure most of us have had the kind of sense that, my God, I'm, I'm 65 years old and still feel the same as I was when I was 18. I mean, I might not be able to run as fast, but that sense of self feels exactly the same in that immediacy of experiencing that's that sense of temporal continuity, which is one of the big questions in the field of philosophy of personal identity. See, the alternative to what I'm suggesting is a reductionist view of the self, which I don't adhere to, but that's a whole other debate within Buddhism. Um, I'm suggesting that the reason why we find it so difficult to shake ourselves out of the illusion of a separate self is because it draws upon our true self in that sense but it mistakes we mistake our identity to be separate we mistake ourselves to be a separate entity uh, whereas in reality we are inseparable from consciousness so the flux of our experiencing, the flux of our experiences, the whole notion of the five aggregates which are flowing constantly impermanent. But they are being, they're gaining those sense of presence or being in our aware presencing in consciousness. Consciousness is conscious of itself. Um, but, or you could say awareness is aware of itself but because we identify with a separate self and we identify with this natural attitude of the world as being an object out there which is separate from our consciousness we we lose ourselves in that world in that matrix if you like and it requires, it requires some kind of
either meeting a teaching or perhaps some kind of experience to actually help us to see that, that we've gotten lost in that identification process. Does that make any sense, Richard? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's really uh, interesting that what you're talking, what we're, what we're here for is so, uh, uh, it's so profound and, but it's very radical as well because everywhere we're kind of um, surrounded by, seem to be surrounded by these mirrors that reify the sense of the individual self, you know, whether it's our conditioning or our cultural, you know, cultural values and, um, you know, it seems to be that, uh, you know, all, all the cognitive biases we have in evolutionary neurobiology seem to kind of reinforce this, create this protective sense of an individual, um, individual self. Um, and yeah, you see the cracks appear when you when you practice, and you see that there's there's this whole other there's this opening to this other sense of reality. Um, but for for me, it's very fleeting because I, I I continue. I'm sure it's a very common experience that keep defaulting back to this sort of like your ego defenses, where it's almost scary to to lose that i you know individual identity or to have it have it threatened or questioned. By this greater awareness yes and even in the early days in the 60s and 70s we got distracted by the story of enlightenment being some kind of experience or event enlightenment is not an experience or an event it's who we are right now and it's the mystery is right here right now we just don't recognize it. We don't need to go on a session for seven days and subject yourself to 15 hours of sitting every day to recognize the mystery that you are right now. And when you touch that mystery, it transforms our life. It's very difficult to take anything for granted. This is a total mystery and it's full of love and beauty. Hello. Hello, Michael. Can I, can I pop into the conversation at this point? You're popping in right now. <sighs> can you hear me? Yeah, it's um, a little bit of distortion, but so far, okay. Can you hear me at all? I can hear you, yeah. The line. Okay, all right. Oh well, Sunday Sunday soaring on blissful big stuff. Thank you. Um, as usual, the talks take me on a on a on a journey of uh, thoughts and feelings and ideas and. Uh, where I went today, Andrew, was um, thinking of my father and my brother, um, my father who's dead, and my brother who's um, radically going in that dimension, both with Alzheimer's. So, so I was thinking of how, how does everything that's being said relate to someone who's dementing or has, has demented. And I was thinking of my brother who I spent two weeks with recently. And uh, he, he ain't got an egoic sense about him. He, he seems to be in the moment or almost looks like he's in inhabiting that non-dualistic 
dimension. And, you know, does he seem centered and, you know, seated in, in Buddha's lap? Um, Mu, I don't think so, though. Um, he desperately needs an external reference point to know where he is in time and space. He follows his wife around like Mary's little lamb. Um, so I was thinking, well, so so what is, what are the what does he need to to kind of you know negotiate that higher realm and negotiate the relative world well um, does seem to be like a a personal set itself um, that 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 is 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 kind of referenced in time and space and we're, we're born with this ability or, or, or gift of developing an individual self that is fixed in time and space or has coordinates in time and space. And yeah, I, I, get, I get that that can be a kind of egoic self that's lost in dualism. And, may, and maybe we do need shocks or trauma or something to, to wake into the relational, the higher relational. And maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's a higher level of our flowering of self. Um, The I am that you talked about. And maybe that's that's where the little self kind of can operate in a, a bigger or that that kind of relational non-dual way and walk between both worlds. I was, I was reminded of that, of that scene at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey, Andrew, where Dave, there's <laughs> no longer Dave, sorry. <laughs> um, I was thinking of our Dave here when he has the cosmic backdrop behind him sometimes on the phone. I just, I, I just think there's, there's something, there's something also real and important about that individual self that we have that isn't just an illusion, but perhaps is, is the crucible of, of uh, the bridge between realms when, when we flower into, flower into that sort of relational realizing of of all those levels that you talk about i wondered uh, what you thought about that um those musings about people with dementia and alzheimer's thanks michael they're, they're very good questions the whole questions about alzheimer's dementia personal identity um, so two, two points. The first one, just in response to the last question about, uh, yeah, it's absolutely important to take care of our personal self, our relational self, um, mm -hmm. in the same way as we have needs for food and shelter, we have needs for healthy relationships, etc. We need to take care of ourselves in that way, our personal self. Um, 
In regards to the dementia question, I think that's a very good example of the paradox of language. And language creates duality and it creates identification. But it's also the key to liberation from that same sense of identification. Uh, we need language to point out the non-dual in a way. We need language to point out that the, that which is not language. Um, so language is, is necessary. Uh, without it, we'd be pretty much like your brother. We'd be pretty lost. So we need that basic cognition of language, the ability to use language competently. Yeah. We need to be able to recognize our true nature and we can't really do that without some sense of language. We need to be able to make distinctions, like the distinction between the conceptual self and the observing self is, I think, a distinction only human beings can make. I could be wrong. It's that, that to me is, is, sounds pretty much like you need to have a relative self to be able to make a distinction and kind of realise in a way the absolute self and that the two are related somehow very importantly. Well, this is very much a theme in Zen, you know, the, the, the classic Zen story is that, you know, that the monk says to the master, master, what is Buddha? You know, what is, what is my true self? And the master says, come here and give him a big whack on the face, right? That's language. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Can I step in here? Step in, please. Um, so, you know, in reference to the whack on the face and past traumas that we've all experienced, you know that and and the sense of protection and thank you by the way andrew just running on that thread that's fabulous talk yes um fabulous musing in reference to that you know we all have past traumas and um and and painful experiences and of course you know when when we um perhaps come across those circumstances again, there, there could be a very deep reaction in response to past experience and, and relating in that sense. So there we have a sense of protection, which is, you know, and, and discernment, which is a, a, a part of duality. So, you know, as, as you say, we, we all need an ego to care for ourselves, but um, the need to discern or to even judge sometimes is to perhaps avoid more pain that would relate to those original traumas. So, you know, that there's a bit of a juxtaposition there for me. I, 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 I sort of get it partially, but to, to live as a, you know, open person to all these things um, without some sort of protection, surely some sort of wisdom can come into, into this. <laughs> I think perhaps that yeah. So, you know, how does that all lie in in relation to these? What is a beautiful concept? Yes, you know, to to be able to embrace life from a uh, holistic self. Okay, thank you, Pingla. Yeah, um, they're very real things. Yeah. 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 
can't, this kind of like relates to what I was the previous question. Um, yes. It's important to look after yourself. <laughs> Simple as that. And and uh, the wisdom and the compassion which comes from the realization that I, you know, that our true self is this aware presencing is invaluable in that process of looking after yourself. And discernment is, a, is an aspect of wisdom. And uh, the, the realization that the separate self is an illusion is something which enhances one's capacity for compassion, doesn't detract from it, including compassion for the self, your, your personal self, as well as compassion for others. Um, there would be absolutely no big deal about this from a Buddhist point of view if it didn't lead to a, a more loving and kinder world. So the, the realization of I guess, yes. that, that, that's part of that, that journey. And, you know, uh, we all tend to get, if, if we're, you know, past traumas are triggered, we all tend to get swept away with, with those experiences. I mean, that's like Narcissus getting lost in the reflection. It's a, it's a pretty steep practice. So, yeah, I mean, a, if you read the chapter, if you read the chapter by Joker, she was she she says something. I don't think she, you know. I don't think I've met anybody who's being their observing self, you know, one hundred percent all the time. We're we're talking more about um, a shift in one's identity so that the frequency and duration of of getting lost in those reactions reduces mm. dramatically. Certainly our, our tendency to get caught in drama reduces dramatically. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. I think we might have to leave it there for today. Um, we're almost at 12 o'clock. So thank you for your participation. Thank you for your questions. Questions are really great and uh, continues to uh, help to try and get some clarity on sometimes these more obscure aspects of the teaching. So I'm always really doing my best to try and get some clarity and simplicity, but sometimes it does get a bit complex. There's some subtle points that we need to keep returning to over and over again.